On the other side of Texas, history has its place. On the other side of Texas, justice rules the case. They don't like it, they don't love it. They say we're all wrong, but on the other side of Texas, hearts, we roll along. Hey there, howdy. Thanks for tuning in, and thank you, more and more of you, just telling me, hey, I love the program, and I am sharing it with friends, because you always intro the show and say thanks for tuning in and telling a friend that you hang out on the other side of Texas, and you know, we call it other side of Texas because we cover... By and large, we cover rural issues, and that takes in a, uh, a kind of a synthesis of a certain social view and a certain economic view. And there are a lot of people in Texas who find that to be a good place. And so we're glad, especially after an election night that proved this program right, that you hang out on the other side of Texas. I'm your host, Jay West Texas Leeson. Across the way, the one and only little sister, Lauren Huff. How you doing? Doing pretty good. Pretty good. Yeah, it's hump day. It's right. It's Wednesday. Almost it, to the weekend. Get it done on Wednesdays. Yeah. We are broadcasting from the studios that made Buddy Holly famous, and we are glad that you are tuned in with us. It was election night last night across Texas. We have the Texas Tribune's executive editor, Ross Ramsey, who I am going to begin to dub as my Texas political therapist ross ramsey has been doing this for four decades and he'll be up with us here in the next segment as we kick the show off and i want to begin with election night in lubbock county last night we had an open seat for a county judge and it in the final total we had 54 percent for curtis parish so Parrish pulled in 54% to Gary Bourne's almost 46%. That's how the election took shape. Now, I want to say a couple of things about this as, as we start off locally and over the course of the program begin to spread out. The first thing I'd like to say is this. I like Gary Bourne. Gary Bourne is my friend. Gary Bourne has been a civic leader he has credits to his name that uh, you could go through the extension project in Lubbock from 42nd to 82nd, what that's meant for the city. And I think that Gary Bourne has a lot of respect locally. Uh, he and I talk a lot about various things, and we talk frequently. I don't know Curtis Parrish. We had him on the program. To be fair, Gary Bourne was given every opportunity and for whatever reason, chose to not come on the program. But all that aside, I didn't really take an activist role in that race. Now, I had some constructive criticism or just polemical criticism about things that I saw going on in that race. But I have not yet named who the real winner was and who the real loser was because let's, let's go above the fray here. Let's go other side style. I can tell you who really won last night in Lubbock. The winner on the county judge race was the Lubbock Avalanche Journal. On Sunday, the Lubbock Avalanche Journal ran an editorial and letter. And part of that was, and I'm quoting, Boren, Gary Bourne resigned his position on the council. By doing so, he avoided having to give a deposition in a lawsuit concerning the city's insurance contract. What did he have to hide his alleged attempts to circumvent city policy and procedures that prohibit council members from firing city employees led to numerous staff complaints and wrongful termination lawsuit by one employee, the suit was ultimately settled by the remainder of the council. The employee was awarded a massive payout. Now, this is what I hear and what I heard a lot from the Boren camp. Not, not Gary Boren, but people that were back. These are things that I've heard. That the Lubbock Avalanche Journal is irrelevant. That the Lubbock Avalanche Journal, I've heard it coined... Uh, things from I like to eat a bullet 
oatmeal, drink a glass of water, and read the Lab- Lubbock Avalanche Journal before I go to bed at night. So I go to bed with nothing on my stomach and nothing on my mind. And that's the sort of things that you hear people say. Like the the Lubbock Avalanche Journal is irrelevant. Now, different people can have different perspectives on why the Lubbock Avalanche Journal didn't run the editorial letter that they ran even into the the primary and not even into the runoff. And I understand those different points of view. But it is absolutely 100% disingenuous to say the Lubbock Avalanche Journal is irrelevant and then point at the Lubbock Avalanche Journal as the causative factor for the way that the election came out. You can't have it both ways. Is it relevant or is it irrelevant in this community, in this upheaval that we have in print media and everything that's going on with media, social and every other? Is the Lubbock Avalanche Journal relevant or not? And I think it proved itself to be perfectly relevant uh, still to this day in this community. The big winner last night, the Lubbock Avalanche Journal. That definitely impacted the race. And I will say, I think it was right for the Avalanche Journal to, I'm for a public square that's perfectly lit. I don't want a dark public square. And there is still the capacity, even though we've had all of this upheaval, for entities and pillars in communities like the Lubbock Avalanche Journal to have the place it has and to use its space to draw questions and even though these things were a decade and more ago to bring people to a point where they really have to critically decide what's the motivation and it seems to me that and I don't want to dismiss the work that Curtis Parrish and uh, his people did in that race to get the votes to get the turnout the dismal turnout by the way but the Lubbock Avalanche Journal certainly proved that it's still a pertinent... And, you know, for everyone I've heard say, well, that was out of bounds, the Lubbock Avalanche Journal shouldn't have posted that on Sunday, I've had other people say it didn't go far enough. They could have drawn more questions. And the role of, of a community newspaper ought to be to set the standard to lay out what's before us. And I thought the Avalanche Journal seized on the moment and had to say what it had to say and i don't take issue with avalanche journal on that front now who's the big loser the big loser last night was lubbock county sheriff kelly Rowe. 100 percent, no doubt about it i want to i'll preface with this Rowe has been one of the best certainly in my lifetime has been a great sheriff for lubbock county And I think that he's really capitalized on politically and within budgets and otherwise the claims he makes. And I think that our friend Brandon Darby in studio with us on Fridays, I think Brandon Darby, Breitbart, Texas, make the same argument that Roe has come in. He's talked about drugs. He's talked about cartels. You see the Lubbock County Sheriff's Office involved in standoffs. And then it's also got the growth of Lubbock County over the last decade. Its budget has doubled from a decade ago. And I think in many ways necessarily so. And Roe has held the reins on the growth of the county in the sheriff's office within well i should say the sheriff's office within the county and in many ways he is the big man on campus and he's proved himself to be somebody who can go in and tell the commissioners what he needs and why he needs it now the problem for roe is that in january two, why is he the big loser In January 2016, there was a congressional race in which there were umpteen candidates. I think between 8 and 12, I'll have to go back and look at exactly what it was. But you had all these – this is a U.S. congressman, Mm -hmm. congressperson, that is going to be elected out of Lubbock. And Roe goes in early. The Lubbock County Sheriff goes in early and decides that he wants to name – a winner in that race that he wants he wants to get behind somebody in that race an elected official decides you know what i'm going to throw it not a not a retired official 
but an elected official. And Roe goes in and says that he's behind a particular candidate. Now, here's the problem. If you're off, you're going to be off because there are federal grants that a congressman can help you with, an astute and competent congressman can help you with, which I deem that we have an astute and competent uh, congressman now who Roe did not pick. You have to have somebody who can be a liaison between you and federal agencies. And Roe was wrong in January 2016. Now, you come forward two years, a little over two years, in April or so, Roe jumps into this county judge race. Now, what's a county judge do? Ultimately decides is a big factor in deciding what your budget's going to be. And Roe jumps in this two-person race, and guess what? He was wrong again. And you look, Sheriff, understand that, that you've got the drug units out, but politically speaking, you aren't the only drug unit in Lubbock County. You've got the DEA involved. You've got the Lubbock Police Department involved. You've got a whole lot of people involved there. And I don't understand Kelly Rowe's insistence to get involved in these races because ultimately, if you're right about drugs and the cartel and the standoffs, then stop getting involved in political battles where you can be undercut later on. And I don't, I'm not assuming that Parrish is going to undercut them, but I am saying, why do you involve yourself in these races? And the same thing for Ronnie Keister, tax assessor collector at the county. What, what are you guys doing? Like, I understand that you think that you got wind behind your political sales in the little party that is at the Lubbock County Republican office, but you were wrong. You were all wrong. And now there are consequences. that Now, maybe Parrish will ask him on Friday. Maybe he's going to be big enough and say, well, uh, I'm going to let all that pass. And I, I would just assume that Arrington has too. But people have political memories, especially during re-elections. Now, the thing that I hated about the race... I love the smell of napalm in the morning. ...was the napalm in the morning, how caustic it got. Lubbock is a lot better than than the way, especially the boring crowd, played in that. And I don't know, I cannot, I cannot understand why they got the way that they did. And I thought that they were caustic, and it was, it was not indicative of uh, the community at large. Um, ultimately... Uh, Parish stayed on message, and uh, and Boren swerved f from side to side on what he wanted to do. Uh, Parish has a big job going into that commissioner's court now. He's got two who voted on the pay raises, and then he's got you know what are you going to do about this this tax accessor co collector and the sheriff? He's got plenty on his political plate, and ultimately too, you've got Woodrow Road. And which I think was the whole basis of the race. And the Woodrow Road in front of Lubbock Cooper High School, the state senator, in my estimation, put his name not publicly behind that race, but got behind it and uh, pushed some levers, pulled some levers, and didn't work out the way that he wanted it to. And so that's the situation that Parrish walks into. We'll talk to him on Friday, 530, here in these studios. He is my Texas political therapist, Ross Ramsey, executive editor of the Texas Tribune. Ross, what were your big takeaways last night? Uh, the big win, of course, was the governor candidate and uh, Lupe Valdez. That was expected. It was a weird night, though, because as the returns came in, uh, Andrew White, who lost the race, did unexpectedly well in Harris County. He did better in Harris County than Lupe Valdez did in Dallas County, where she was elected sheriff four times. So that was kind of a surprise, and for a long time it looked like an even race. Uh, at the end, it wasn't even at all, but um, the Democrats got the candidate they expected, and now they've got a really, really tall six-month hill to climb against Greg Abbott. Okay, let's talk about what I wanted to start the show off was I had to cover some Lubbock County stuff, but if I had it... To, to do a statewide show, I would have started off with the different degrees of being hammered and then having a hangover. And like there's Animal House and then there's like Mild Hangover. And I would have asked, how big a hangover did Joe Strauss have last night? Because House 
Republicans did very, very well in their runoffs, uh, especially those who might identify as a Strauss Republican. What do you make of that against uh, some hardliners? Well, you know, what happened was the Strauss folks uh, in open seats and in, um, I guess, in defenses, they did pretty well in March. And then in open seats last night, they did very well, uh, winning five out of six races that had been targeted by Empower Texans and by Texas Right to Life, two of the groups that were really funding and fueling the um, the hard right challenges, the anti-Strauss kind of candidates, and and you know they were looking to add, you know, in broad terms, members to the House's Freedom Caucus, and they you know uh, didn't make much much headway there. They lost five of the six races. Uh, Strauss won five of the six races. And in that sixth race, they elected a candidate who's going to be running against a Democrat in Dallas County, where the sledding for Republican candidates is particularly hard this year for a couple of local reasons. Dallas has become, used to be a big red county, now it's a big blue county. And there are some local races that are going to drive Democratic turnout um, in ways that are beneficial to Democratic House and Senate candidates and and maybe a little dangerous to Republicans. So a couple of things I've got to ask you about there, Ross, as I sit on the couch and have you um, give me some therapy here. Uh, I'm getting paid for this, right? I hear a lot of people talk about, (laughs) and and I've said it too, but the return on investment that's involved with Empowered Texans, and uh, let's just stick with that pack for just a moment. I've seen numbers from the Empowered Texans pack that they spent $820,000 in these races from March to May, only 65,000 of that 820 was involved in a winning campaign. You say five out of six was one on the Strauss side. Well, one out of six, I don't think it's about return on investment. I think it's, we're just going to, we've got the money, let's do what we can. What do you make of the ROI? Well, I think you're right. I don't think that's the primary concern. If this was an investment, you know, there's a better way to invest a dollar than into politics. You know, to start with, and you know, you know, go buy some stock or something. Uh, and this is really about belief and about what you, how you think the government ought to run. And you know, there's a fundamental idea here that you ought to be able to do with your resources, whatever they are, whatever you think is right. And if you've got, you know, all the money in the world and you want to spend it to get something done, you know, that's your money. Do what you want. It doesn't mean everybody's going to agree with you. That's the balancing act in politics. Is you get, you know, that's that's one of the reasons why we have the campaign finance laws in Texas that we have. Go ahead and spend all the money you want, but you still have to get a majority. And if you can't get a majority, you know, your money goes down the tube. And in this case, a lot of that money uh, didn't advance the cause. If advancing the cause means getting your people elected. Ross Ramsey, executive editor of the Texas Tribune, with us here on a Wednesday as he usually is. Does There's a sense that the House could be further emboldened. For people who aren't familiar with Texas politics, you have this, you know, you got these three different entities, the governor, and correct me if you think I'm wrong, but Ross, but you've got the governor's office, you've got the Senate, and you've got the House. And the play is which two can become allies. And it seems like the House, which was on the outside looking in, or maybe the one against the two in the 85th legislature, the House just further emboldened itself last night. Now, we don't know what the general elections are going to bring, but the House is seems to me to be ready to double down on its defiance of the other two headed into the 86th. A little bit. I, you know, I don't completely agree with you. It's just a runoff, and it just sets up the slates for the election in November. And it wasn't really a demonstration of the will of the House. It was maybe the will of the Speaker of the House, and he was one of the big donors in last night's election. If you go back and look at who gave to Associated Republicans of Texas and other groups that were you know, helping those folks. But in terms of an expression of the whole House, I don't think we've seen that yet. You know, the... The House, uh, the the best thing we're going to see, or the or the closest thing we're going to see to the sentiment of the House, and I know you're watching it, is the outcome of the race to replace Joe Strauss as Speaker. That's in kind of the early stages. I'm not sure we have heard from all of the people who are going to be candidates, and we may not have heard from the next Speaker yet. But I think you know you're really going to see the House's sense of the electorate and of where the members of the House want to go 
when you see that election. And I don't think you're going to see what the House's sentiment is until they've seen what happens to Republicans and to Democrats in the November election. It's still a midterm election. Uh, it's a president who's controversial but remains remarkably popular in Texas. And we'll have to see how November comes out before I think we have the answer to that question. Which brings us to your analysis piece. Ross Ramsey writes an analysis piece every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at texastribune.org. With the runoffs complete, the 2018 Texas general elections begin in earnest. Uh, you know, you and I have talked about this, but I ha- since the last time that we've talked, I've had M- Mike Collier lieutenant governor candidate for the democrats democrats excuse me in studio Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. i asked collier about the impact on him it seems to me that he has a voting block that he's going after more moderate people who are who may just this is what it seems to me with collier he wants the guy who's republican who doesn't like the way things are going to go behind the curtain pull the lever for him and maybe he never tells anybody never puts a bumper sticker on his car but valdez seems to be a candidate who's ready to energize a more liberal base and i asked him how are you going to deal with that because it's going to be the governor candidate who uh, gubernatorial excuse me that should be setting the messaging and he straight told me no the lieutenant governor runs at the top of the ticket so it's to say he's going to set the messaging do you think that Guys like Beto O'Rourke, who's running towards the middle, in my view, and uh, Mike Collier, how's that going to play with Lupe Valdez at the top of the ticket? I don't think Lupe Valdez is at the top of the ticket. I think that Beto O'Rourke's at the top of the ticket. I okay. think the race everybody's going to be talking about and the race where the money's going to be spent is going to be the U.S. Senate race. The question for Lupe Valdez is if she can get enough into the game that people see the governor's race as a race. Greg Abbott has a ridiculous amount of money in his bank account, more than $43 million, and she has not raised as much money as was spent in one of the Dallas uh, state Senate races. Um, She's got a long way to go to get enough money that enough people in Texas know the positions of the two gubernatorial candidates when they go in the ballot box to vote. Um, She's got a long way to go. In the meantime, a work is outraised Cruz, and I think that he's got enough money to make his case. I don't know that he wins in a red state, but I think you know he can make his case and make it a battle. And to the extent that there's a ticket leader or somebody driving people to the polls, I think it's going to be the top of the ticket. Yeah, Mr. Valdez is going to be you know hoping to ride in his wake. And Collier, you know, has a point has has a point in a way, and and doesn't have a point in a way. Uh, it's hard for lieutenant governors to get any attention, and uh, his ticket to attention is Dan Patrick's popularity or unpopularity, depending on which part of the electorate you're talking to. If you're talking about Dan Patrick and you want to keep the Mike Collier's the thing in the way, if you want to get rid of Dan Patrick, Mike Collier is your way out. And, you know, he's got an opportunity there, but it's very hard for a lieutenant governor candidate or anybody else further down the ballot, like AG or controller or something else to break through and really get the public's attention. Yeah, you know, that's really interesting about the money, Ross, because I've seen Beto O'Rourke's money already beginning to infiltrate in his messaging because I was talking to a couple of ad guys last week, Beto O'Rourke, or is earlier this week, Beto O'Rourke goes on and defends his vote against the farm bill, and I had ag guys, just two, I don't want to make it sound like it was 25 or 300, tell me well the house version of the farm bill would have never passed in the senate and the senate's version would not pass in the house and you know this is what o'rourke said and i think that he's right there but it was just i I would i couldn't imagine even four years ago hearing somebody say well you know this is what the democrat said because nobody's heard what the democrat has said so i think you i think you're right that he is at the top of the ticket in that regard um, we have 95 Republicans in the House. How many of those races, as we look towards a general, how many of those 95 seats may be in jeopardy here? You know, I think five or six for sure, and I think if it's a big election, you know, 10 or 12. Um, the, most of the seats that are in play in the Texas House are in Dallas County, and it goes back to what I was saying about Dallas County is blue already. 
and there's some compounding there um, with all of these races that overlap that uh, could make it a tough night for Republicans. There's a, a district attorney race, as you know, a, a hot district attorney race can sometimes drive local turnout, and you know they'll look around the ballot. Lupe Valdez is a former Dallas County Sheriff that's going to help turn out in Dallas for the Democrats. They've got a bunch of uh, Democrats challenging for seats that the Republicans have barely held on to in past elections in the House and in the Senate. And I think that could be really interesting and could, you know, if everything falls in the Democrats' direction, you could get five seats in the Texas House, five additional seats in the Texas House for the Democrats just out of Dallas County. If you go around the state, there's you know a, a seat here and a seat there. Um, I think the best night for Democrats would be to get uh, the Republicans down to 85 and the Democrats up to 65. Uh, the worst night, I think, would probably be in the 90 to 95 seat range for the Republicans. Yeah, for it to stay the way it is. Well, speaking right. of Abbott's money, we uh, we were both. I was I was honored to be in your company as soon as the race was called. There was the YouTube commercial with uh, you and I in it, uh, critiquing Lupe Valdez. And I yep. think uh, that's probably some astute politics. We had our criticisms. I think uh, you've probably said a lot more positive about Lupe than I have, but sound clips are what they are. And is right. that going to be M.O. for Abbott going forward, just lay that out constantly between now and November? Yeah, the, the advantage that he has with his money is that uh, Lupe Valdez is not known statewide. Um, there's going to be an echo of this if, if you ask me about the Ted Cruz Beto O'Rourke race. But if you're a known candidate with a decent bank account and you're running against an unknown candidate, you have the opportunity to describe your opponent to voters before they describe themselves. So before they make a first impression, before Lupe Valdez makes a first impression on voters, and you know, gets the warm, fuzzy feeling she's looking for. Greg Abbott has an opportunity to define her to readers or to, to voters in a much less meritorious way. And uh, he's already started doing that. He started doing it within you know 10 minutes of the race getting called last night. And I think we're going to see that all summer long. So he's uh, you know, the strategy here is to get her defined before she has the money to talk about herself. Wow. Well, that's a good breakdown. I mean, at least Wendy Davis, she had become notorious. I'll just use that. People knew who she was, by and large, and uh, Lupe Valdez certainly well, doesn't have that advantage. The, the Wendy Davis thing, I mean, if you go back and take that apart, in large measure it was a version of what I'm talking about. You know, the Abbott campaign defined her, and they, you know, at one point they actually used the term abortion Barbie mm-hmm. and defined her. Uh, well before she was really talking about herself and in a way that she was still answering for at the end of that race. I mean, this is an example of what I'm talking about them probably trying to do with um, this new opponent. Ross Ramsey, at Ross Ramsey on Twitter. Ross, thanks for making time. It's a pleasure, buddy. All right. Next Wednesday, Ross will be back up. In all candor, I want to be transparent. He's he's my buddy, and I like him a lot. And he just won a mayoral race in Stanford. I'm bringing him on for a reason. He's got a vision for rural Texas that uh, he wants to begin to implement, I'm sure, pragmatically there in Stanford. Life in a small town. We have our friend James Decker just sworn in as mayor of Stanford, Texas. So let me be one of the first on radio to say... Thank you for joining us, Mayor Decker. Well, thank you, kind sir. Uh, where are you? I am driving through the uh, beautiful world of Aspermont, Texas right now. Coming up the McKenzie Trail. Trail to there you go. You think about them a lot whenever you're driving up that cap rock, the red turreted towers of the fabled Llano Estacado, to use Sam Gwynn language? It's, it's hard not to, and, you know, when you're driving between Jayton and Post, there's some of that country out there that, that's just about as wild as it was when McKenzie was, was breaking through it. Yeah. I, I've said this before, James, but I often on cold, cold days that are windy or hot, hot days that are, are brown up here, I'll think I'm such a weenie because McKenzie did this for I don't know how long on horseback. 
with a bad hand. Yeah, exactly. So you won. Tell us a little bit about the race, and then I want to get into your vision. You've, you you promote this stuff on your Facebook. Uh, you're a very public personality even before you got into office. But tell us a little bit about how the race went, what you and your lovely bride, Lauren, learned, and uh, what what that experience was like. Well, I had served on the Stanford City Council for a couple of terms, and we've got we've got two-year terms here in Stanford, and and just decided, you know, um, last time when I was up for re-election, and the mayor's spot and I and my city council seat are on the same cycle, and and I just decided um, had several people ask me over the years to consider running for mayor, and you know, two years ago I didn't feel like I was ready, or you know, in my personal life, or just where I had the vision already set to run it. Because I didn't I wasn't gonna run for mayor just for the sake of running for mayor. I was gonna run for mayor when I was ready to to make an impact. And in just the last kind of two years I had it in my mind that I'd like to um, you know, lead up to it. You know, that was maybe what I had in mind for twenty eighteen. And then and then just, just the last couple of years as time went on on my service on the council I realized it was time and so the so last summer I, I made the announcement that I intended to run and uh, and then away we went. I had a Contested race against the incumbent who who had, I'd served on the council with and had been um, had been uh, the mayor for um, for 13 years and um, thankfully um, things went well and and I prevailed. Okay, so there's the backstory. And right after the race, you win, and then tell us about Miriam. So had a had a um, mayoral election on May 15th or excuse me May 5th. And then May 14th, baby was born. So it's been a been an active active month in in Stanford, Texas. Wow. Uh, was there any scheduling there, ten months ago? Or <laughs> no, no, not at all. I'm not I'm not clever enough to schedule anything intentionally like that. <laughs> I'm just um, there, there was speculation in town whether whether my wife was going to go into labor, you know, as a result of the election. And and thankfully that didn't happen. And you know I'm a I'm old school. I'm a vote on election day kind of guy, but. I decided it was a prudent decision for both of us to early vote, just in case. Just in case. You need every vote in Stanford. Exactly right. One vote makes a difference. Uh, James Decker with us here on the other side of Texas. It's on Twitter, at James Decker 2008. Is 2008? 2006. Oh, 2006. 2006. Excuse me. At James Decker 2006. The 2006 is what? That's my class year at A&M. Yeah. You were not a two percenter, were you? I mean, it's even. I was not. A, I was not a two percenter, but I do have a. For all the good folks in Lubbock, I do have a, a Red Raider law degree. As well. You do, you do. But that's uh, funny that even, even that's part of your handle there on Twitter. Uh, Aggies never cease to amaze me, and I mean that. I'm. I'm not saying that in a derogatory. There are people who think that the world at one point in time in. The mid '90s shifted off its axis, and I didn't go to A&M. Uh, there are people who believe that. But uh, <laughs> moving forward, so tomorrow we're going to have Stephen Whitmer on this program, and Stephen Whitmer is a minister up in the Northeast who once had a view of rural uh, America as one in which it could be just disregarded. But he has, and I think what he would say is God has changed his heart on that. He's written. A couple. He's got a new one out today on gospelcoalition.org, talking about the value of rural America. And I look across, and I'm glad to call you a friend, James, because you are, uh, you give a voice to rural Texas, and I think that you're a young mayor at this point of a town in rural Texas. Tell us a little bit about your vision there in Stamford, and if you were leading, if there were other, how old are you, James? I'm 33, 34. Okay, so let's say that you were leading a convention of, you know, some 300 other young mayors in rural Texas your age. What would be three points that you'd hit on? You know, the the um, first thing is to think about what makes your town great and why you love the town and how, how you can use that for the future. Uh, number two is think about how your community can serve the modern economy and not and modern society. You know, you can't, this is something I've written about in the past, is, you know, nostalgia is great, but you can't recapture those certain places and, and businesses and things that happened in the past. You know, what's past is past and, and, and what's done. 
but there are things about that nostalgia that underlie it the the spirit of community local business that sort of thing that you can um, repurpose for a for a modern era and and number three is um, and this is something that's very important to me and, and passionate that I'm passionate about as someone who moved, moved back to my hometown uh, you got to get your young people to return home and I heard this uh, my dad said this several years back uh, when somebody was talking about in the same in the same breath they were talking about how they sent their kids away not to come back but they wondered how they could get better things in town and he and he made the comment how can you if you don't think your town is good enough for your own kids how can you expect it to be good enough for somebody else's kids and and that's something that that i think everything centers around that if you think your town is good enough for your kids to come back to and encourages them to come back to then then you can attract others as well so tell us let's break those down so what makes stanford great and how can you leverage that for the foreseeable future so you know, you know, Stanford is is uniquely positioned. It was the uh, it was the center of of multiple railroads, uh, the Wichita Valley running north and north and south, and the Texas Central running east and west, and then the Stanford and Northwestern running up to uh, running up to uh, through the ranch country up to Spur uh, and that part of the world, and the old all the old Swinson ranch lands. Um, and it was so it was it naturally developed as a trade center and a hub of retail, commerce, shipping. And all of those things, and and in, put it in modern terms, uh, we are we're the place that has a Walmart between um, you know uh, between Abilene and Wichita Falls. You know, if you're out you know north and west of Sanford, you either you go to Walmart in Lubbock, you go to Walmart in Childress or Vernon, or you or excuse me, not not Childress but in Vernon, or you go to Walmart in Sanford, or you go go in Graham, and that's and that's literally it. And and you know we're so as time went on and we moved away from the old type railroad wholesale type economy to a, you know, more modern economy, uh, we still maintain that, um, that hub, um, uh, that, you know, uh, not quite the hub city like Lubbock, but a, but a retail hub for the, for the rolling flames. And also, you know, we've got our, um, you know, our heritage as a, as a sure, as a legitimate, you know, cowboy town you know, with the Texas Cavalry Union and the heritage of our big ranches in the area. Uh, there's a lot of heritage there um, with the world's largest amateur rodeo and, and a lot of, you know, uh, great history there that, that a lot of towns are looking to create with new events that we have, um, that we have ready, we have a story that's ready to be told that's, that's authentic and, uh, and dates back to the, to the 19th century. Hmm. Okay. So that's what you got to blow your horn on. I just see that uh, we just got up on our Twitter your lovely Lauren taking pictures. You don't have Bluetooth in the truck, James? I'm not clever enough to have Bluetooth in the truck. Clever. Nice. See, that's some John Sharp and that's some John Sharp action. Be humble with the truck. Have a good house. Uh, so, <laughs> tell us, so serving in the modern economy, what are you thinking economically? What's some strategy there, James, about how you outfit and begin to retrofit, I guess is the word I want to use, uh, Stanford to compete in a modern economy. Because I'll say that, you know, like you bring up Walmart, and in the early 90s, you know, I've studied rural economy. In the early 90s, you began to see the two grades on the chart. We, we were huge in manufacturing, and then all of a sudden, distribution just shoots out the roof because we weren't manufacturing, we weren't producing here any longer. We were producing in other places and then distributing out of the United States. So along those lines of manufacturing and producing a viable economy in a rural community in Texas and America, what are some economic policy initiatives that you want to take up in Stanford? Well, you know, one of, I think the th- most important thing to think about, and, and I spoke to some classes of uh, fe- uh, senior class at, at Stanford um, while, while campaigning, and one of the things I told, told those high school students is, you know, we have to embrace technology. You know, we can, uh, you know, we can wish for, you know, 1960s with, you know, um, the, um, the agriculture economy that was very labor-intensive and, you know, small business, um, you know, mom-and-pop stores, you know, all over the place, and that being the norm. We can wish for that all we want, that doesn't, but it's not going to come back. We're not going to do away with the Internet. We're not going to do away with ultra-mechanized agriculture. It just is what it is. So we figure out how we can use the circumstances in which we live 
and and we can um, use that to our advantage. And I think technology is where rural America really needs to really needs to embrace. You know, people people can work um, more flexibly. Uh, more jobs can be done from more places than ever before. You know, working remotely, working from home, those are those have become huge um, huge points in urban and suburban centers. And I think um, it's they're just cry, it's just crying out for rural America to jump to jump all over that. Now, now one of the keys that we're gonna have to deal with is rural broadband. And you know, I've talked to some of some Stanford you know natives who um, who have tech businesses elsewhere, and you know, they're very interested by you know what they could do in Stanford. But but consistent rural broadband, and I don't mean just your you know regular you know consumer DSL. You got to have some you got to have some serious broadband for you know for businesses that are um, that are internet dependent, you know, not necessarily video, you know, dependent. Not not like we're talking about anything like that, but just need to have a stable, reliable, fast um, internet connection. And so that's a challenge in in um, in rural America. But you but you combine that with you know some initiatives to encourage rural rural broadband. You combine that with the extraordinarily low cost of living and um, you know housing prices and becomes an attractive option and you know i tell people we're 45 minutes from abilene and stanford you know you can be at the you can be at the at the brand new fancy uh you know 3d movie theater you can be at chick-fil-a you can be at lowe's you can be at all these things in abilene in 40 minutes or less if you're living in a suburb of dallas fort worth uh, you may only go 10 miles but it might take you that long to get there um due to traffic and stoplights yeah and the grand scheme of things um, all of the creature comforts uh, that we don't have in Stanford are available at a at a really short distance. Well, and you have the and you have the quality of life that you that you may not have if you're being if you're sick of driving through a miserable commute in a in a major metropolitan area. Yeah, and county judges have and I've written on this in the past, but there have been rural county judges who said, you know, I'm sorry, big cities, if your property taxes and I don't want to go through the whole argument about the share of public education dollars that go into property taxes but you go back and listen to mike call your interview for that uh not you the listeners james but you know look there are options out there and i think you get a pretty decent house for a hundred thousand dollars in stanford texas you can buy a very nice house um uh in stanford for a hundred thousand dollars and actually you know there's there's been people who have looked to move out of the urban areas and looking at housing prices in Stanford and going, my gosh, I can get a, you know, I can get a house this nice for this cost is, you know, what, what, this doesn't make sense. Yeah. And it's just, but it's just a whole different, it's a whole different market. Yeah. I think, I think that there could be some upside to that. If people are moving from California to Lubbock, then I think that people would certainly consider moving out of urban areas into the Stanford, Texas is this is one big thing that I didn't see you run on. Will there or will there not be under a James Decker with whom we're speaking right now, newly sworn in mayor of Stanford, Texas, will there will there not be an initiative, whether through private, public private, or just private altogether, a statue of Charlie Sinholm in the town square in Stanford, Texas? Well, you know, our Cowboy Country Museum, which is a which is a fantastic museum with some uh, some phenomenal Western art and cowboy heritage, they actually have a Charlie a Charlie Sinholm display with his um, his old desk from the Longworth Building in in the U.S. Capitol. I so want the Preston Smith that. version statue. I tell you what, let's make this a life goal between the two of us over the next two decades. You get the Charlie Sinholm statue in Stanford and I'll push Duncan and the rest of those guys at Tech to get a Bob Bullock statue on the Texas Tech campus. Well, I think if it gets a Bob Bullock statue somewhere in West Texas, then I think we can all agree to that. Yeah. So you do have the Texas Cowboy Reunion. What is that? Uh, is that the second week? Is that lead up to January, July 4th? It's always the Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday nearest July 4th. So this year it will actually be July 4th through 7th. Okay. Well, we're going to get you back on to talk about that as that rolls in. We certainly want to pub that here on Other Side of Texas. And, again, he is James Decker at James Decker 2006. Thanks for taking time as you come up the McKenzie Trail, buddy. 
You're you're welcome. Glad to do it. We'll have to do it again sometime, Jay. Yeah, we'll do. Uh, give Lauren my love, and Miriam. We'll do it. All right. I'll give up. They're both in the car, so we will do it. So we're gonna go there. We have one of our favorites, Blue Collar Bill, with some things to get off his chest. How you doing, Blue Collar? Tell us about where you are right now. What what's I around you? I'm just about to roll out of Idaloo, Texas. And you're in what? I'm in what? You're, yeah, what are, you, what are you rolling in? I'm driving an International 4300. Okay. I think most people... GT 466. Most people just call it an 18-wheeler, right? Yeah, yeah, big truck. Okay, big truck. There you go. Do kids uh, kids drop by and ask you to blow the horn? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I get the, I get the pull the chain sign all the time. Okay. Especially in the smaller towns. They, they, they love that. Is it really a chain, though, or is it... Uh, leather band what is it on a lot of trucks it is a chain overhead on on mine my air horn is, is tied to the horn pad on the steering wheel just like your pickup all right well you got a modern 18 wheeler then what'd you call it international what it's an international 4300 international 40 taking a note international 4300 uh, Bill, you've been listening to the program this week. You got anything on your mind that uh, has been irking you or something you want Man, to trick me on? Or I, I was out here yesterday listening to your guest talk about the fraud, waste, and abuse going on. Mike Collier. Yeah, Mike Collier. And... Uh, Man, when when he told me about the, the 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 businesses able to sue the state to lower their property taxes to equal or less than the cheapest property they can find around them, you know, and that's costing the state five billion dollars. Meanwhile, I'm out here uh, crumping at seventy hours a week. Can't buy insurance because as a healthy person, that's five hundred dollars a month. Got a back that's broken four places. A totaled right knee can't get health care, working myself to death, being taxed effectively at 50%, just got my property tax statement, which went up 16%, and then I find out the businesses aren't paying their fair share. So, yeah, I lost it. I so, uh, absolutely lost it. To set it up, though, what Collier said, I believe the example he used was if you've got a $2 million building, and no, if you got appraised at $5 million, you can go find a like building at two million and get it lowered down, even though it may be in completely different parts of the city, different kinds of transportation, different kind of values around you. And his case is that there's a five billion dollar loophole there, and that's grinding your gears in the International Forty Three Hundred. Well, it really is. I mean, when when you're out here struggling to make ends meet, and, and a lot of us are. You know, and then you hear about this kind of stuff. It, it does. It grinds your gears because we're not we as the but, working man and the taxpayers. We're not getting a fair shake. Bill, it, let it, me it irritated me. Let me jump in because what the argument back will be, I can almost guarantee, is well, if we let them settle out there, they'll provide more economic activity, and that will produce more than the difference of three million over the given course of a year. And, you know, we just had James Decker on, the mayor of Stanford, and he was talking about archaic economics. He didn't call it that, but he said we need to work in a modern economy. Do you think that tax benefit argument still works, Blue Collar Bill, given the lack of manufacturing in this country, the amount of distribution, a lot of money flowing out of communities into others? now because dollars aren't passed locally do you if a politician came to you and said whoa you need to allow that business to get the two million dollar appraisal because they're going to produce three million dollars you buy that yeah i mean you'd have to look at that at a case-by-case basis i think um you know i can see the benefit of doing some tax abatements and things like that to attract business and, and i believed lubbock should do that for the last 35 years. I've got a 22-year-old son that just graduated college. He's going to have to move it away unless he wants to build shutters or, or uh, assemble sprinkler heads. So, yeah, I'd, I'd love to see that. If it took tax abatements to do it and do it the right way where billions aren't falling back on the taxpayers who are already being crushed, uh, I could go along with a certain amount of abatement. Yeah. 70 hours. 
and the insurance. Yeah, I think that I think you got a case to make there. I'm glad you Jay, that's make it. it. I mean, last 12 years I've kept track. I've averaged 67 hours a week. And and that, that's 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 what it took to get my son pay the bills and get my son through college without him coming out a debt slave with fifty thousand dollars in student loan debt. No. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you chimed in on something that's uh, grinding your international 4300 gears, buddy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just you know, let's 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 uh, watch this election real close, and let's uh, try to elect somebody that's gonna 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 work for us for a change. Did did Collier? I assume you listened to the entire interview. Did did Collier get you in the undecided column there? Yeah, he, he did. He, he really did. Uh, I, I, I detected uh, a, a sincerity and a passion and an intellect and a, a, a what sounded to me as a, a, a good basis of knowledge of what's going on. And, you know, when, when a guy brings all that to the table, you got to look at him. Okay. There he is, Blue Collar Bill. I appreciate you calling in. Appreciate you listening. I know a lot of people enjoy your perspective on a weekly basis here on the show, Blue Collar Bill. Well, man, we love y'all. We appreciate all that you're doing to, 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 to keep everybody in the loop. We try to. And you drive safe as you get back to the loop, speaking of. Yes, sir. 15 more minutes and I'm home, baby. All right. Well, Hong Kong, he is Blue Collar Bill. We're going to – let me just tell you about a couple of things that we got going on as we – Get into Thursday and Friday. Yeah, I covered how we're going to start trying to look at a national basis on Thursday. Also, tomorrow I want you to listen to the YouTube ad that uh, this program was, I shouldn't say featured, I'll say cameoed in the ad. Did you like the ad, little sister? I did. Oops, my mic's off, but I liked it. Yeah, I thought it was a pretty effective ad. Yeah, and, I uh, mean... I think you're going to hear a lot more from that from Abbott over the next, golly, months to come. It'll be a long summer for Lupe Valdez. Hey, uh, I'm going to go home. I'm going to get home. Got an above average supper and a great family waiting. Until next time, uh, we appreciate you sharing the program and appreciate you listening. Wouldn't be here without you. Not a living for me, but uh, something I really enjoy doing, and I appreciate you taking time. You know, whether you're listening on podcast or live stream or on air here in the studios where Buddy Holly became famous. You can look forward to this content up on Facebook at Other Side of Texas, Twitter, OSTX Show, at OSTX Show, and Other Side of Texas.com. Until then, signing off for Ross Ramsey, James Decker, Blue Collar Bill, and little sister Lauren Huff. Jay Leeson, have a great evening. goodbye, amigos. I am leaving you today. Ain't nobody around this town that's gonna miss me.